Hello, and welcome to another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. My name is David Naff. I am the Associate Director of Merck and the host of this podcast. In connection with our equitable access and support for advanced coursework study, we are here today to talk about dual enrollment classes, which involve a partnership between K-12 school divisions and community colleges to provide students with opportunities to take college level classes and earn credits towards an associate's degree while in high school. Dual enrollment classes are just one way that high school students can engage in college level coursework, um, along with advanced placement or AP and international baccalaureate or IB classes. Merck put out a recent research report exploring who takes AP classes, and we have a research brief exploring who takes dual enrollment classes that accompanies this podcast episode. And we have invited a panel of experts here today to discuss dual enrollment, including the purpose of the program, who tends to participate, and how to expand access to the opportunities that it offers to students. Let me introduce everyone to you now. Patricia Parker taught in Virginia's classrooms for 28 years. Her teaching experiences included middle school, high school, and dual enrollment in community college mathematics. She has facilitated redesigns of developmental education and mathematics. In the last three years, she has served as the Director of Transfer Virginia with both the State Council of Higher Education in Virginia, um, we might, you might hear it referred to as CHEV during this conversation, and the Virginia Community College System to lead one of the largest and most co collaborative higher education initiatives in the Commonwealth. Through extended collaboration with the Virginia Department of Education, she has collaborated on dual enrollment strategies to better serve students. She's now serving in a transition and support role for Transfer Virginia as she prepares for retirement. Patricia, congratulations on retirement and welcome to the episode. Thanks, David. So really glad to be here. Lori Dwyer serves as the Interim Vice President of Academic Affairs for J. Sargent Reynolds Community College. Prior to joining Reynolds, Lori served as the Associate Vice Chancellor of Programs for the Virginia Community College System, where she supported a variety of academic and workforce efforts, including expansion of statewide dual enroll enrollment opportunities. Before moving to Virginia, Lori worked at both two and four-year colleges in Colorado, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. She received her BA and Master's of Education from the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse and her PhD from Old Dominion University. Lori, glad to have you here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. Taylor Reard has been teaching in the dual enrollment psychology courses at Goochland High School for the past four years. She is also currently teaching in the Blue Ridge Virtual Governor School Senior Internship course. She graduated from VCU with a BS in psychology as well as a master's in counseling education. Before joining the dual enrollment instruction team at Goochland, she served as the Advanced College Academy career coach for Reynolds Community College. Taylor, so glad to have you here. Hello, thanks for having me. Alan Riddle has served as the Director for Dual Enrollment at Reynolds Community College for the past two years. Prior to that, Alan was a K-12 teacher for 22 years, Dual Enrollment Site Director and Adjunct Professor. Alan has spoken throughout the country on dual enrollment issues and served as an Accreditation Commissioner for the National Alliance of Concurrent Enrollment Partnerships, which is the national accreditation body for all dual and concurrent enrollment in the country. Alan, so glad to have you here. Thanks, David. Looking forward to the discussion. Addison Winston is a senior at Goochland High School, and she has been attending Goochland County Public Schools since she was four years old. She was first introduced to dual enrollment programs like Advanced College Academy in the eighth grade. She is also a student of the Blue Ridge Virtual Governing School and a dual enrollment student through Reynolds Community College. She is a member of English, Math, Spanish, and National Honor Society. She is also a music director for the Goochland High School and Middle School Drama Department and works as an intern for a greenhouse company in her spare time. It doesn't sound like she has spare time, so I'm so glad you're able to join us, Addison. Thank you for being here. 
Hi, thank you for having me. And then finally, we have Jenna Lenhart. Jenna leads the recruitment initiatives in the Office of Enrollment Management in the VCU School of Education. She received her BS in psychology from the State University of New York in Buffalo, her MA in higher education administration from Appalachian State University, her PhD in higher education leadership from Capella University. Uh, Jenna is passionate about access to education and her professional career has included community colleges to research one universities. Jenna also serves on our research team for the Merck Advanced Coursework Study. And I'm really excited that she's going to be co-hosting this episode. Jenna, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Um, All right. So we're going to jump right into this conversation. Alan, I'm going to ask you to kick us off, if that's okay, to help set the foundation for what we're talking about with dual enrollment. Can you please provide an overview of the dual enrollment program? What is its purpose and how does it currently look in Virginia? Sure. Um, So dual enrollment is set up in the state of Virginia to allow advanced coursework options for students in K-12 that are juniors and or seniors um, that they can take college coursework while they are in high school and concurrent with high school. So what that means is that the students can earn college credit. It could be transferable or not, depending upon what lane it's in and what pathway um, that's transferable. Uh, At the same time, they're fulfilling the graduation requirements for the Virginia Department of Education. Um, And so that can take form in a number of ways. Um, We have what we call transfer courses. So transfer courses provide students the opportunity to take college courses, uh, check the box on the high school requirement that they may have um, at the same time, and then transfer those courses onto university. Of course, they also may be transferable to Uh, the community college if a student chooses to go that route. So they have a lot of options. In addition to that, for students that are looking for uh, advanced coursework options and to get a bump in their GPA, students also get uh, what's generally accepted um, in the state of Virginia for AP or IB, that five uh, level for uh, that dual enrollment coursework option. So it's no reason why you would not want to in the sense if you were debating uh, you know, AP, IB, uh, dual enrollment. Of course, their students are beginning a college transcript at the same time that they are fulfilling requirements on the high school transcript. So these would be students that when they complete their coursework option, if we talk about transfer, um, these students would have courses that are transferable to university to go into a lane of whatever that may be, that could be what we've gone through recently in the state of Virginia over the past, I guess Patricia can talk about this, two years, um, is looking at those transfer courses to university and trying to make sure that all the work and the effort that the students give while they're in high school to earn those credits, that when they graduate from high school, that they turn around and receive that credit if they go to a state institution in Virginia. Um, and so Transfer Virginia is that initiative that's happened with these students. And I don't want to steal anybody's thunder, but, but that allows for those students to actually gain the traction of these courses that they take. And it actually is meaningful. So it puts them ahead of their peers. It allows them to move forward in the curriculum. And the data shows uh, that students that earn even three credits of, of dual enrollment uh, transfer credit can have significant impacts on their future, uh, higher GPAs, they graduate earlier, mm-hmm. um, you know, they can enroll in college courses earlier than their peers that do not take dual enrollment. But in addition to the transfer courses, of course, there's also uh, CTE dual enrollment options, which allow students to move into pathways that can provide a job and, and a career quicker. Um, and and the, so their non-transfer courses 
um, but they would fulfill requirements towards some sort of certification and, and some sort of pathway, depending upon what route they go, um, that a student may begin that in high school. But then once they matriculate on to uh, Reynolds, they could continue and complete that uh, in a number of different areas. And for the transfer courses, I'll jump back to that. Students will apply with those credits that they've earned. You know, they could take, you know, three, six, nine, 12, all the way up to a full AS degree, 60 plus credits that are transferable. But regardless of however many they earn, any dual enrollment student in the state of Virginia that goes on to university with those credits would be applying as a freshman at that university with transfer credit. Um, so then again, they would apply uh, as a freshman, they would uh, submit their transcript from, from on our case, Reynolds, um, as well, the high school transcript, and then those deans and so forth and admissions would look to see what counts for what. Um, and that's how, that's kind of a quick, quick rundown of kind of how it would work. Right. And a lot of the benefits that you've talked about there, Alan, definitely resonate in the research. And I think the the focus on career and technical education as an option is one of the things that sort of sets dual enrollment apart as a unique opportunity for students in terms of advanced coursework opportunities in high school. Um, and Patricia, Alan already gave you a shout out during his, his response. So how would you say that dual enrollment uh, efforts, they, how do they plug into state, statewide efforts to promote access to advanced coursework in high school? Yeah, I'll have to send Alan a check for being my opener. <laughs> so, thanks, Alan. <laughs> no, the, um, the, you know, Alan kind of did set the stage. And I want to say that while the career and technical education piece of dual enrollment is, a, is an extremely important piece of what we're doing in Virginia, and there's a lot of work around stackable credentials that take students uh, from a certificate level into an associate's and, and getting jobs all along that way. So there's a lot of work uh, around those, those credentials. So if we think about the transfer side of this, then uh, there's a lot that has been happening, and, and as Alan mentioned, under the guise of Transfer Virginia. So over a year ago, the Virginia Community College System, which is the prominent uh, provider of dual enrollment, though there are others in the Commonwealth that offer it as well, implemented quality standard guidelines to make sure that we were upping the ante a little bit across all college classes, whether they were taught in a high school or on college campus. So that has started to make a difference in how the higher education world looks at dual enrollment classes and how they transfer. We have passed state policies over the last couple of years. You know, five years ago, it depended what high school you went to, whether or not your dual enrollment class actually transferred. So we, we have state policies that now say, if a university is going to transfer a particular class for anybody, they transfer it the same for everybody. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, working towards that. But really, if you started to really listen to all the opportunities Alan described, that in itself creates a complex world that is very difficult for students to understand and navigate and, and all of that. And so some of the biggest work we've been doing is around really closing the information equity gap around dual enrollment, as well as creating transparent messaging. Um, so one of the things that we have done collaboration between Virginia Department of Ed and the VCCS is create a statewide dual enrollment transfer guide for students and parents, as well as for providers of dual enrollment. And just one example of what that does is Alan mentioned kind of the different opportunities, you know, whether you're going to take dual enrollment courses, 
whether you're going to get a passport or UCGS, which I'll mention in just a minute, and then, or whether you're gonna get an associate's degree, which choice is right for you? Because it's not always beneficial to have an associate's degree for some students. It's not always beneficial to take certain courses for some students. So the guides really just are, it's just blunt. And it just puts out there all the things that, that parents and students should think about. So I mentioned Passport and UCGS. Another thing that we're working on, because it's not always the best thing for every student to get an associate degree, depending in high school, depending on their plans, uh, two other guarantees have come about, and that's the Passport and Uniform Certificate of General Studies. And both of those are general education-based programs, which is very often what dual enrollment focuses on. And students are guaranteed to earn the 16 credits of the passport or the 30, 30 to 32 credits of the UCGS at Virginia's public universities, as well as many of the private universities. So if they complete that package and take it with them, 16 or 32 credits of general education are guaranteed. Uh, and that that is something that I think is big for dual enrollment students because that does apply uh, to all dual enrollment. Um, we have created a Transfer Virginia Counselor Alliance with all the high school uh, counseling departments that are the ones getting this information out to students and meeting with them and providing them resources. And then I think probably oh, just two other things. The we have we are providing a grant opportunity called the dual enrollment alignment grant where the high schools and their partnering colleges are assessing what they're offering for dual enrollment and based under what we know now what are they actually uh what should they offer in in a in order to best serve the students uh in transfer and the passport and ucgs of course are the center of that and lastly i would just say by putting all this information in the new uh, Transfer Virginia portal, I feel like I'm an advertisement, but I'm really not. But, <laughs> but the point is that the portal will now be full transparency to all students. So if they wanna know how an AP class will transfer as well as how a dual enrollment class will transfer, it will be accessible to them in one location and, and be, give them the transparency they need. So that's what we've been working on. <laughs> Trisha, that's that's amazing, and I and I really appreciate all of the pieces that you shared because you honestly shared information that I don't know, and so I think it really gets us to this conversation about what do we know about dual enrollment. So, David, can you tell us a little bit more about what the research is telling us about dual enrollment right now? Yeah, absolutely, and I, I want to preface this by sharing that sort of the purpose of Merck and really the certainly the purpose of this podcast is to connect research policy and practice. Um, and so this is just a quick overview of what we know from the research that's gonna be included in this research brief that accompanies the episode, but the collective expertise of folks that we have on this call is really, it, like, I think it's really important to weigh that um, against what we know in the research. So uh, just sort of an overview of what we know about dual enrollment. So matriculation in dual enrollment classes has increased dramatically in the past 20 years. Um, national research suggests that despite the increasing popularity of dual enrollment, that there's persistent racial and socioeconomic disparities and who participates in dual enrollment and AP classes, but the uh, 
the disparities tend to be much less pronounced in dual enrollment than they are in AP. Um, the same is true in Virginia. So according to recent school quality profile and fall membership data from the Virginia Department of Education, uh, looking at before and uh, after the onset of COVID-19, the percentage of economically disadvantaged students in a school division tends to be highly predictive of AP participation. So in other words, the more students that you have in your school division who qualifies economically disadvantaged, the lower participation in AP. Uh, this tends to be less predictive of dual enrollment participation though. In fact, one is significant and one of them is not significant. Um, so that suggests that there might be greater socioeconomic access to dual enrollment classes um, throughout the state. Um, however, we do see that dual enrollment participation also tends to be uh, much higher in divisions with higher percentages of white students. Um, so some federal le legislation related to this, the Every Student Succeeds Act emphasized that dual enrollment is a key mechanism for increasing college and career readiness in K-12 students. But ultimately, because that's at the federal level, it's really up to states and school divisions to determine whether or not they want to form these partnerships and offer these classes to their students. Um, and recent research out of Texas suggests that early college programs in high school can really help to promote matriculation in classes like dual enrollment. Uh, but sometimes these classes are more likely or less likely to serve um, underrepresented student populations. So it's important to make sure that if you're offering these classes that uh, you're also offering some sort of targeted expansion efforts to students who um, a lot of times aren't uh, benefiting as much from, from these advanced coursework opportunities in high school. National trends also show the same thing. So dual en enrollment expansion um, does not often directly ameliorate some of the enrollment disparities that we see based off of student demographics. Research suggests that policy changes that happened in Virginia in 2005 when we sought to expand dual enrollment did lead to more students matriculating directly into four-year college. This is a lot of what Alan was sharing directly after uh, graduation. Um, so longitudinal research shows that students who took dual enrollment in high school were more likely to attend four-year college. They're more likely to persist in college they're more likely to take a full-time course load. And because of all those things, they're more likely to um, experience on-time graduation while they're in college. And so what are some of the strategies that actually help promote um, greater access to dual enrollment? So because dual enrollment is based off of a partnership between K-12 school divisions and community colleges, it's important to encourage shared leadership between those entities to make sure that they're providing the, the best possible resources for their students. Um, it's also really important that, and I'm sure we'll have some conversations about this today, that dual enrollment instructors and students have uh, open communication that those instructors engage in some pretty um, considerate outreach towards students because these are college level classes that uh, research shows that high school students can sometimes feel intimidated to take. And so it's important to kind of remove that barrier. Um, it's important to engage in an ongoing review of any potential impediments to students access to dual enrollment. So that includes eliminating financial barriers. If it's possible to make it so that students don't have to pay for a dual enrollment class, that's very important to expanding access. Um, and it's uh, like any advanced coursework opportunity, it's important to make sure that we're expanding communication about dual enrollment programming to families from any kind of underrepresented groups. Um, and Patricia was just talking about that. Um, and then finally, when you're offering specialized programs like early colleges to increase access to dual enrollment, um, like we said earlier, it's important to engage in some target expansion efforts to reach areas in the state with higher concentrations of poverty, and uh, especially in urban and rural areas. Um, and again, the research makes it very clear that dual enrollment has a very clear benefit to students, um, and that this is something that in order to increase access to it, it just uh, really comes down to how you're offering it to students and making sure that you're really targeted and thoughtful in your expansion efforts.
Thank you, David. And what really kind of resonates with me is that sort of different experience with different schools. And so, Lori, I'm going to pass this to you to sort of ask the question about how how does this research resonate with your experience with dual enrollment and how also kind of a sub question is, does it fit into your overall message mission at Reynolds Community College? Absolutely. So I, I would say that, David, you could have been speaking in many senses about the Richmond region and Reynolds Community College. And, and really, it, our mission is twofold. It is around access and around student success and making sure that we are providing higher education pathway to the communities that need it most. And so we do that at Reynolds in a variety of ways, um, e each of which, though, I will say builds on what David spoke of at the end, and that's around partnerships with the school division. Those partnerships cannot be in name only. They cannot just be on paper. They are about regular, substantive, constant communication, communication between the faculty that are um, teaching traditional college classes with the, faculty, the adjunct faculty that are teaching in the dual enrollment setting. It is between administration. It is between the career coaches that we provide to the schools to surround these dual enrollment students and ensure they're, they're advancing and that those needs are being met. The, the actual pathways that we offer to the students also really matter. Uh, we have a scale of, uh, or, or breadth of opportunities for students, everything from career and technical education, if students wanna um, take dual enrollment courses in culinary or in automotive, um, where they may not be on a transfer path and rather they will have a leg up in their post-secondary education when they complete high school to matriculate into, uh, into Reynolds after or another institution after high school, or in many cases, be better prepared to immediately enter the workforce with post-secondary training under their belt. We also offer uh, what we call the Advanced College Academy or Early, co um, Early College Academy. Where this is for strong academic students in high school, juniors and seniors who can complete a rigorous course of dual enrollment classes with Reynolds, complementary to their high school requirements, and actually graduate with their associate's degree concurrent to their high school graduation. Now, that's not um, for a typical student. That is for a, a, a very advanced academic student. Please remember that those advanced students don't just come in um, higher socioeconomic areas, that we have very academically gifted students in every corner of our community. And with our early college academy, we actually bring students, in that case from Richmond Public Schools, into our downtown campus, and they take their college coursework on campus. And for me, and for I think our, our, our team, and the high school team and for these students, it is not just about the educational competencies that are gained, which are invaluable, sure, but it's also about the success experienced on a college campus. It's coming into this psychological environment, walking among um, you know, post-secondary scholars and folks that are coming back for, um, that are 35, 45, 55 and, and re-engaging in education. And to experience that success in college not only impacts that student, but that is, I believe, where you start to see generational change. That individuals can come and say, I can be successful in this environment. And they pass that on to your whole family. 
So I'm really, really proud of the access mission. I, uh, one of my favorite things about community colleges, a lot of institutions of higher education pride themselves on who they don't admit, that they admit only as the upper echelon of students. We pride ourselves that we admit everybody. And so with dual enrollment, students have to um, meet a certain academic threshold, but at the community colleges, we really are here to serve that and deliver on that mission. And the only other thing I'll add is, um, I mentioned CTE and I had mentioned some of our more advanced college academy. There's also a huge swath of students who can benefit from taking the first few courses of an academic pathway and gaining the confidence and skills in their junior and senior year of high school that position them for greater success, whether they transfer into Reynolds post high school graduation and have three, six, nine, 12 credits completed already. That's not only a financial savings and academic and time savings, but also a real confidence builder. And they could take those credits to us if they were in the Passport UCGS that Patricia is referencing. They can transfer or enroll with us after high school, but they could also take those credits and apply them to any other um, four-year institution at, at, uh, in Virginia and experience those same successes. So it really is a way to save time, money, build confidence, and your academic credentials. Yeah, and uh, Lori, as you were describing the the mission oriented aspect of community college and dual enrollment, I, I literally got goosebumps because it just reminded me of my time as a high school counselor and how much this meant to my students to be able to have access to these kinds of classes and to and to be able to know that they had a plan for after high school because everything that you just described really emphasizes how this really gives students an opportunity to get a leg up on their future. Um, and Addison, we we have you here from Goochland High School, and you're taking dual enrollment classes. You're involved in so many different things. I'm curious, what led you to pursue dual enrollment classes, and how do they compare to the um, the AP classes that you've taken at your school? Yes, so um, I was first introduced to the dual enrollment program at my school. Um, like was mentioned before, we use the ACA, the Advanced College Academy program at our school. And um, I was first introduced to that program when I was in eighth grade. And we had a big auditorium meeting where we all talked about things that we can do outside of the regular Goochland standard um, progression of classes, things like the dual enrollment program, things like the Blue Ridge program. And what sold me about the dual enrollment program was how much of a time saver and a money saver it was. I have many friends who have done this program and went into college as senior, I mean, as juniors in college mm. and saved a lot of money. Um, friends who now are teaching assistants um, and have become assistants to me after only spending two years in college, um, they're able to enter the workforce a lot faster and save a lot of money that they would have spent having stayed four years at a college that they could have stayed two years at. And that really convinced me to look into the dual enrollment program and it really kind of pushed me towards the dual enrollment program and away from AP classes because my experience with AP classes, I've been taking them since about ninth grade. And the difference that I see between those two is that a lot of AP classes focus on how to pass the test. While in the dual enrollment program, it really teaches you a lot about that subject and it kind of opens you to what you do want to do in college. 
Um, with this program, I was able to take an anthropology course. I was able to take other courses that I would not have taken at Guzun High School. My friends are able to take sociology courses that aren't offered at my high school. And there are so many things that it is able to give you to show you kind of what you may want to do in college, but you may not want to do in college. And I feel in my AP classes, much of it was how to take the test, how to pass the test, how to get that credit, rather than actually delving into the subject. My dual enrollment teachers personally spend a lot more time taking into account how the subject is affecting the real world, um, what you can do with the subject in college, after college, how you can turn this into a career. A lot of it is focused on the future with what you may want to do in college or out of um, college going into career-wise. When I felt in a lot of my AP classes, it was much more about just gaining the credit and moving on. So I really like that the dual enrollment program takes into account the student's journey past college and past high school. Right. And um, Addison, you mentioned earlier that you were uh, planning on going to University of Virginia next year. Congratulations. How do you feel like maybe your participation in dual enrollment, like, did that have any kind of impact on your trajectory to ultimately end up going to UVA? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I took a lot of courses with the dual enrollment program. I started in around my 10th grade year and I was able to take courses. I was really excited to take a course that I'm in now, a biology dual enrollment program. I mean, dual enrollment course, um, Bio 101 and 102. Mm-hmm. And my sister actually took a lot of the courses that I'm, took it, that I'm taking now and she attends University of Virginia. So she was able to show me, okay, these courses are going to be able to put you on this path if you want to continue with biology. These mm-hmm. courses are going to help you get ahead of what other students and other college freshmen are in right now. So being able to have that leg up and being able to be ahead and maybe save a little bit of money without taking that gen ed at UVA and just doing it in high school really pushed me to join the dual enrollment program because with colleges, like four-year colleges, it can get a little expensive. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And Jenna, reflecting on um, Addison's experiences and what she just shared and thinking about this through the lens of your work in recruitment and outreach for the School of Education at VCU, what do you know about how standardized or high stakes testing, like what role does that play into the decision to take dual enrollment versus AP versus IB classes? Yeah, you know, and Addison, thank you so much for sharing your experience, because I I think that that really resonates with the decision making that I'm seeing with students is really thinking about what's the experience for me in classes, and then what am I also going to get out of that class. And so I think what I see students really kind of thinking and debating about is um, a, what are my options, right? So what options are available to me? And, and dual enrollment are going to have very different options in potentially than AP. Some may overlap, but a lot of times, as we've already talked about in this call, dual enrollment is going to give you potential opportunities for even career pathway opportunities and that idea of stacking credentialization. I think that's really unique for dual enrollment over AP. So the, the high stakes testing component, I do, I do see students making an active 
choice to not take AP because of the test. And, and I think that makes sense given the, the conversation we are also having nationally about um, the ACT, the SAT, the PSAT, um, and, and at the college level, really thinking about um, not utilizing those tests or having them be test optional. And, and really COVID has moved us in that conversation even more about what are we using these standardized tests for? Are they measuring the same, the thing that we think that they were always measuring? Um, and so I think dual enrollment and the lack of a high stakes test does give students who don't want to kind of put everything on the line for one exam. And with dual enrollment, you don't have to do that. And I, I do think that it, it provides a sense of more security in the time that you're investing from a student standpoint. What I hear from students are both the fact that we have opportunities to take the, the class and like Addison was mentioning, really developing an understanding of the subject and not just thinking about the test. At the same time, I think that there are opportunities for students to think about AP in the fact of if I don't get a three or five, three to five on this, I'm not going to get the college credit and I just took this whole class and I'm not going to get anything out of it. So that's what I'm hearing from students um, to also think about their decision making as well. Yeah, Jenna. Um... I totally agree with you. And I have something um, that, that I think is the perfect time to, to add here. When we talk about our mission at Reynolds and we talk about access and we talk about equity, um, and then we talk about AP versus dual enrollment. And you mentioned, you know, the, the, the high stakes testing. I think dual enrollment from that lens provides that so that if a student is successful from start to finish in a course, no matter if they did poorly on a particular assessment or not, uh, if they get a C or higher, they get the transfer credit in the state of Virginia. Um, whereas if a student were to sit and have a, have a poor showing at an AP test on a day in which they've completed the entire course in, in let's say, an English 111 class, uh, they don't get it. So I think uh, to that end, I think clearly dual enrollment jumps to the head of the pack when you look at advanced coursework options for high school students in the state of Virginia. One other thing I'd, I'd like to share as a part of uh, a PhD class that I've taken at uh, ODU, I was looking at some data with around this idea of AP versus dual enrollment, and you know what is what is some data and where can I find some data? So I, I just sort of did a little sleuthing around myself uh, on College Board, and I found that um, you know this is outward facing. They've got all this data that they'll share with you, statewide data. One of the things I looked at was. Um, so in the 2019-2020 year for English 111 and English 112, comparing that to the AP equivalent course, um, what I found and what it showed was that for students that earned a three or higher on the AP course, let's say for English 111, it was 64% of the students that actually took the AP course earned the three or higher. And many institutions in the state of Virginia, you can't get it unless you have a four. Um, but, so I was being liberal in my, my analysis here. So I said, okay, three or higher. So 64% of the students that I saw based on the AP data um, that's outward facing completed English or rather completed the AP uh, test to get the English 111 credit for transfer. Uh, for English 112, it was 61% of the students that earned a three or higher in the 2019-2020 school year. Now, I compared that to our service area and what all of our, our partners earned as far as our students taking dual enrollment in actual English 111 and English 112. Students, particularly, I'll say at Goochland, since we've got some Goochland folks, 100% um, of the students at Goochland that took English 111 completed that course at a C or higher. 
100% of the students at Goochland that took English 112 completed that course with a C or higher. So the difference is, is, is telling. Um, if you look at the overall Virginia data for AP earning three or higher versus what you know, Goochland students earned, uh, that's about 33% more dual enrollment English 111 students will likely earn transfer credit compared to those receiving transfer credit earned with a three or higher on the English language and composition AP test. 37% um, more dual enrollment English 112 students will likely earn transfer credit compared to those same thing for English uh, literature and composition AP test. So I think that gap, that difference right there, 33% and 37% is significant. Alan, you know, you're speaking numbers to me and I like numbers. And, and, and I think that because I think it speaks to this component of, and I look at Addison and she is so busy, right? And, and all of our students and a lot of students are really trying to maximize these experiences and opportunities. So to have a student take a class and then not earn college level credit, even though it was college level class, um, sort of really... I think impacts, I think, decision-making with students as well. And so Taylor, I'm actually really curious what your approach to teaching dual enrollment at Goochland High School is and, and what compelled you to teach in this program? Yeah, so in terms of what compelled me, I mean, I can date this back to my days in high school when I took my first psychology course and just fell in love with the subject. So that has always been a dream of mine. But um, several years ago, I came to Goochland as the Advanced College Academy career coach and really got to know the dual enrollment program, um, got to know the students so well, loved working with them. And at the time, um, our students were busing over to the Reynolds Goochland campus to take a psychology course. And um, our principal and school board was really trying to get them back in the building um, for safety purposes and just, you know, having us all under one roof. And so when the opportunity presented itself to offer the site course, I jumped at it. Um, it was a very easy decision for me and uh, haven't looked back and I've loved it. So um, in terms of my approach to teaching, I was actually just talking about this with Addison the other day in school and how, you know, in a typical school year, there's definitely a different approach than what we've seen this year and last year with COVID and um, having students um, behind a screen last year in the virtual setting, it's kind of shifted where um, not just for the dual enrollment program, but for our school in general, and I think a lot of schools is that there's been a lot more grace. Um, there's been a stronger focus on mental health. And um, that's something that has always kind of been at the forefront of my teaching, especially as a psych course, mental health is very important. But I think we have all you know, shifted our perspectives on what is truly important in the past year or so and getting our students um, back into the routine of things this year. Um, so that's, it's been a bit of a slow process, but I think we're finally starting to see a difference and, and hopefully by next year, we'll be back to some normalcy. Um, but one thing that's definitely constant in my approach, as well as my other dual enrollment colleagues is that we, want to be this sense of support for our students. And they get that not just from their dual enrollment teachers, but we also have a wonderful career coach there now, as well as our dual enrollment coordinator. So we really do try and create this dual enrollment team of support where if a student is struggling, um, 
in any course, they feel hopefully comfortable enough to come to their instructor and, and ask for help. Another thing that we try to incorporate into our program is really teaching our students how to advocate for themselves. Um, that's something that we all believe to be very important, especially when they get to the college or university setting, is that you know they're going to be potentially one in a room of two to 300 students and your professor may not know you. And so it's going to be very important to learn those skills of you know, being confident and comfortable enough to reach out to professors. And um, so that's something we definitely try and incorporate in our instruction. We also, I mean, we're definitely, you know, trying to work on accountability, um, meeting deadlines. You know, I think what's interesting at our school is we, we're all different. Our, you know, how we teach our classes and what we are willing to accept in terms of late work. And um, to me, that honestly does actually give kind of a true college experience because we know that, you know, when we get to school, there's going to be professors that are very tough. And if it's late, it's a zero. And that's that. And we're also going to have professors that are a little more lenient. So they do get to experience a variety of instructors. But again, that is something that we are, you know, trying to instill in them is that that accountability and, and trying to meet deadlines. Again, though, that's more so in a, in a typical year. Um, again, the focus this year, I think, is is just kind of getting them through and getting them back into the swing of things. But yeah, it's um, really, you know, one of the things I like that you said earlier, David, is the importance of outreach to students um, who may be intimidated entering into a college course. That's something that I've definitely um, try to incorporate in my classes, creating this environment where the students do feel comfortable coming to me if they have an issue in my class or another class um, and just offering that, that sense of support, which comes from that school counseling background as well. Um, that's always with me. But yeah, it's been, you know, it's been an interesting couple of years and Addison is definitely, you know, she is such a wonderful example of someone who is, an incredibly busy student and yet she's still thriving in this program. Not to say she doesn't have stressful days because um, we all do, but that is something that we also try and remember as dual enrollment instructors is that yes, these are students taking a college course, uh, a college course load, but these are not college students yet. They are still teenagers. They have tremendously busy schedules. Um, a lot of them are athletes or in our drama department working on school plays like Addison. Um, a lot of them are having to work. So that's something we try and keep in mind as well in terms of supporting them throughout the program. Taylor, thank you for that. And I think that that idea of balancing and and really students trying to navigate what they take, what they don't take, um, and also your, your concept around supporting um, your students. And so, Alan, I'm actually going to kind of pitch this to you and ask, what does that partnership look like between dual enrollment teachers and the community college or university partners? And what kind of training do teachers receive and really support do teachers receive? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, from the lens of, of the community college, we look at our dual enrollment professors in the high school setting as, as regular adjuncts. So in the sense that, that those folks need to be uh, supported and have the same expectations as do any of our adjuncts that teach adult students on campus, online, or, or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and because of that, we clearly should have 
high expectations for uh, professional development, uh, new instructor orientation and training, ongoing professional development. And so uh, when we bring on new high school instructors, one of the things is um, that makes dual enrollment so fantastic is that we take high school instructors that are credentialed, that have um, the coursework, that have a master's degree in the content area, or maybe they have a master's degree in, in something plus 18 credits in the discipline in which they will teach. These folks generally are, are folks that have been teaching in the high schools, that know the students, that know the parents, that know the school counselors, that are ingrained in the fabric of K-12, but yet they have the credentials to teach at a college level. So it's the best of both, both worlds. So these are the best people to be able to deliver this coursework to students and support them in ways in which uh, many of our full-time and or adjuncts that teach adult students are unfamiliar with. And so when we bring on someone new, I mentioned what the requirements would be. Uh, one of the first things that we do is orient them to, to what Reynolds is and, and what do we do? What are the expectations for an adjunct? Um, what systems do we use? Um, when are things due? How do I navigate um, you know, my Reynolds um, as an instructor and in SIS to look up student schedules and GPAs and, and verify all the things that I need to do um, in advance of the, of the school year? So we have that actually as part of what um, within our individual schools within Reynolds that are, they're responsible for. And they actually work, um, the program heads and or the deans work with our new instructors to to, to give them sort of the new instructor orientation of, of what the requirements are to teach a English class, college level English class, math class, history class uh, at Reynolds. And so they go through, uh, they have to have a agenda um, with, with very specific bullets that they go through and that's shared with me. And, and we, you know, we have checks and balances. So we work together to verify that this is occurring. Uh, we make sure that, that these folks are participating um, and in fact, new instructor orientation must occur as a part of our MOU and our agreement that we have with all K-12 institutions um, before any high school instructor begins teaching a college course on the high school campus. So they have to learn, they have to have their course syllabus approved. Um, they have to work with the, the program head to make sure they understand the assessments that are required to teach a college level course, what's generally accepted. Um, they also can share um, best practices with them as well on, on ways in which we, we do it on campus, because, of course, what we're guaranteeing to our university partners for transfer is that the same course taught at a high school is, is essentially the, the, what exactly is being taught to an adult student on our campus that may also be transferring to university. So we have to guarantee that. And, and so our supports ensure that that occurs. Um, so that's one of the first things that has to happen is that new instructor orientation. Um, then one of the other things that happens is for returning instructors, um, we have to have uh, a requirement that they receive professional development on a regular basis. Uh, so just as any other adjunct, we would hold our returning dual enrollment adjuncts accountable for the same requirements that, that an, an adjunct on campus would have. So annual professional development. So they need to attend one on-campus annual professional development, which could include what we call convocation in the fall as the kickoff in August, you know, before classes begin. Uh, they come in and they would be addressed by the dean of the school. And then um, they would have, you know, sort of discussions on, on things that are ongoing and important uh, for all adjuncts. And then we would have uh, breakouts that would be discipline specific where instructors would receive, uh, again, ongoing instruction on curriculum, um, updates on maybe assessments or tools or um, perhaps 
resources, texts, uh, online resources, whatever it takes to teach in that discipline. Um, and that would need to be communicated to any adjuncts at that time would also be done for our dual enrollment adjuncts. Um, and so they would need to attend one per year. So they could do that either in the fall, uh, which would be in August, or they could do that in January in advance of the spring semester. Um, and once they do that, again, that's sort of one of the other requirements that we have um, that's, that's listed specifically in our uh, MOU and dual enrollment contract. Um, and again, that just ensures that we're being supportive of our K-12 folks um, that are teaching college coursework. Um, but then I also hope, and, and, and we get this from many of our program heads and also faculty, that they collaborate together outside of those requirements so that they have established online resources where they can go and share. Uh, they have open communication where they can email back and forth. Perhaps they even Zoom um, outside of sort of these requirements. Um, and then one other thing that happens is that they're evaluated. So for new instructors, um, they actually would receive in the first semester in which they teach an on-site campus visit by the program head that oversees them. Um, and some disciplines where we have a large number of classes, we may even have um, another faculty member uh, that's, we, that's known as a faculty liaison that takes on a similar role as what you would expect from a, a program head. But it's in those areas in which we have so many, for example, English, where we have so many English sections all across our service area, um, we need to have a faculty liaison that can go out and liaise with these folks to support them in the ways that they need it, because the program head obviously has many adjuncts and, and full-time faculty that, that they are responsible for on campus. So again, we do that to make sure that we're fully supporting our folks. Um, so th that happens in the first semester in which a new instructor is brought on. And in addition to that, we have um, in the second semester, that new instructor would be evaluated one second time that first year. Then after that, we follow uh, Reynolds uh, protocols and standards for all adjuncts. And so as I recall, um, the requirement would be in the first, I believe it's the first two or th first three years, I believe it's they, they would need to be evaluated once other than the first year, which is twice. So I guess year two and year three, they would be evaluated once on campus, on the high school campus by the program header liaison. Then after that, I believe it's once every three years is the, is the requirement that we have per policy. Uh, but that's the way that we do it. That could vary, I guess, by college in the, in the BCCS. Yeah, thanks, Alan. That's really helpful context. So we know that um, AP and IB teachers also go through um, a very specific training to be able to offer these different advanced coursework opportunities at the college level for high school students. And Patricia, considering that, what are some of the key similarities and differences between dual enrollment, advanced placement, and international baccalaureate classes? And what do you see as their relative popularity in Virginia? Yeah, good question. So I think that those three opportunities do present different type of learning opportunities. And it's uh, uh, something that uh, Jenna said was, you know, that dual enrollment or even AP classes were opening her eyes to things she might like and things she might not like. And, and so it isn't always about just getting that credit. And, and I think that's an important thing that if, if, students know why they're taking advanced classes. What's the purpose? Is it to advance their um, GPA? Is it to earn college credit? Is it to have a tougher class? The, the APIB and dual enrollment all give different opportunities on how you can learn and uh, you know different ways to integrate great content. 
Um, you, several of the other guests have already spoken to the fact that things transfer differently. Um, you know, dual enrollment does transfer with a grade of C or higher, as long as that college accepts that course. So it's it, it does transfer consistently if it's a course that transfers, whereas the AP and IB are contingent on the test. So we kind of already talked about, um, you know, the waiting on transcripts and all that. But if I focus a little bit more on the popularity, I think, you know, it comes in pockets. And I don't think it's necessarily the student's choice that is driving the pockets of popularity. I think it's more about the access. So one of the biggest challenges about offering dual enrollment is the credentialing of dual enrollment instructors. And it is getting harder and harder to have dual enrollment instructors in uh, in the classrooms at the high schools. And it's only going to get worse because we are leaving, uh, currently most of our secondary teachers have a master's degree in education or teaching as part of their training. But in the last couple years, we have shifted those programs in teacher preparation areas back to bachelor degree level training. So now the teachers coming into the K-12 classroom are coming in with the bachelors but they must have a master's. So, uh, to, plus they have to have 18 credits in their teaching field. So they may have a lot of work to do, which means the ability to offer dual enrollment in Virginia and across the country, probably in many places, is going to go down. And then you might see some of those AP course opportunities bubbling up because the credentialing is different for AP faculty versus dual enrollment. So sometimes the students don't have the choice. Sometimes that, that, the, that it looks like, oh, AP is the big thing at this school. AP may be a big thing because of credentialing of faculty and the availability of faculty. Um, colleges are getting creative. They're sharing faculty between uh, high schools that can do dual enrollment or they're busing the students uh, there are, I believe, eight counties out on the northern neck that all bus their students to Rappahannock Community College, and one math teacher teaches that dual enrollment class. So they're having to be creative on who can offer. And that's where some of the inequities come in, because if you start looking at the data, and then you look at the data on the ability to attract teachers with those credentials to those schools, you're going to see some some relationship there. Um, so I don't think popularity is necessarily something that we can say, oh, it's because that's what students like or that's what the college is like. Um, but also funding is the big issue. Are, are students paying for the dual enrollment? Are the counties paying for the dual enrollment? And so you might see less dual enrollment happening when when the students are having to pay for, for that out of pocket. Um, but I think um, I think everything that was said today is, is correct in the sense that dual enrollment is a opportunity, an opportunity that, that can open many doors for many students. We just have a lot of barriers in between the idea and actually enrolling those students that that aren't going to be quickly quickly and easily solved um, over the next decade or so.
Right. So maybe participation disparities that we see sometimes is more of a function of access. And um, Alan, I know that you've you've mentioned that um, virtually teaching students at one high school from a credentialed faculty member at another school could potentially be a way of addressing some of those access disparities. Um, do you want to share just a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things um, that Dr. Dwyer talked about earlier was uh, pivoting. So I think through this pandemic, we've all seen that it's certainly acceptable um, nationwide to offer virtual options for students. And so what that does is when we talk about credentialing challenges that Patricia just mentioned, um, that creates opportunities, I think, to think um, out of the box. So when you talk about virtual options, I've talked with some of our partners about, hey, let's think creatively about this. Why does the person physically need to be there? Remember, um, the last two years, we've done everything virtually. So why can't we uh, take one of your credential faculty members, as, assuming that you can adjust your uh, master schedule to have students at one location that are taking a course with a qualified instructor match up at the same time at a different school uh, with the same class and offer it virtually and just have someone sitting in there like a substitute teacher or someone or a teacher that perhaps is uh, on their duty period or something like that. Um, and so then that's sort of, you know, taking out two birds with one stone. You got one first person that's qualified in the county. You have two different schools where you want to offer this one course. Let's offer one virtually. So that's definitely something that um, that's that's discussed when we talk about the challenges of having credential faculty uh, to be able to teach dual enrollment and offer it. Um, and not have to only look at AP just because of the fact that our, our folks inside the building may or may not have uh, all the credentials they need. Right. So it might take some creativity and adaptability. Um, and, and Taylor, so considering all this, how does this resonate with your experiences teaching dual enrollment at Goochland? Um, well, first, I mean, just the whole, you know, the topic of credentialing is something that, you know, I wasn't even really aware of in terms of what we're looking at with um, these new teacher prep programs and that may be being an issue. So that's something really interesting um, that I want to know more about. But um, in terms of how, you know, this is, I've seen this in Goochland is I'm definitely, I think we're all seeing this kind of shift away from AP um, classes and AP tests, even though we offer two of our ACA classes, our um, English and history and government courses actually, are their students are able to take the AP tests as well for those courses. And so I'm seeing um, where just a few years ago, students were very willingly signing up to take that AP test at the end of the year, even though they were going to be receiving credit for getting a C or higher. More and more students are definitely um, choosing not to do that because they're not really seeing the benefit to that. Another thing that was uh, mentioned earlier, I think, you know, from Addison and others is just, you know, that not having to teach to the test or preparing students to take this test, you know, really does open up the possibilities for the course and allowing you to you know, focus more on, you know, real world situations and how you can incorporate that into your curriculum. With my class as well, you know, it's it just something that I try to incorporate each year is, um, you know, having them work on personality inventories and assessments to kind of see where they are and see if that's lining up with things that they might want to pursue in the future at a post-secondary setting. And that's not something I don't, you know, I'm not sure if I would necessarily have the time to do if it were just an AP course and I was I was teaching for the test. So 
yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to see, you know, if the dual enrollment credentialing, credentialing is going to be an issue if there will be that rise of AP courses again. So that's, I don't know. We'll have to see what happens there. Yeah, um, speaking on what Ms. Beard said, um, it's become very common, especially after going through COVID. Students, at least from what I see, are not really happy to take a test right now. Um, not even just by AP test standards, but just by large like standardized testing. I feel that COVID has really changed how we do that. Um, after having one, two years off for some students, there's been a lot of loss and test taking techniques for students. Um, and honestly, after going through an AP test during a COVID year, only three students signed up to even take the exam after going through an entire school year of that class. Mm. There's no big push to really take tests like that anymore after going through that. And I think that's why so many people want to do the dual enrollment program so they wouldn't have to worry about going through a test or an entire, I mean, going through a class for an entire school year just to not even want to take a test in the first place or not want to have to pay $90 for that test and then pay a cancellation fee was also a big thing that we go through. So just going through the dual enrollment program is kind of an easy fix for students right now who just have lost a lot of that technique in test taking. Thank you, Addison. And, you know, I think that we're going to talk about kind of perceptions. And so I think you kicked us off into the, the concept around perceptions. And so Lori, can you tell us a little bit more about what do you see as the public perception of dual enrollment? What, what sort of leads students and their families to decide to pursue this option, given sort of what we talked about today? What, from your perspective, are you seeing? It's a really important question, Jenna, because when we're working with dual enrollment students, it's really not just the student. It, it is the family. Right. And so we have to work to educate and inform the family around the opportunities. So I don't know that there is a singular answer to how what is the public perception of dual enrollment. I think when when folks are made aware of the opportunities, uh, the perception and the experience when they're engaged, um, hopefully uh, it's is a very positive one. But I think we have a responsibility, and Alan and I take that responsibility at Reynolds really seriously to get out into our communities and not just talk to the students, but talk to the high school counselors, talk to the parents of the students about the reality that college can be for them. That um, there are many students who are very ready to believe that college is not part of their future and certainly not part of their present while they're in high school, even though they may be so academically inclined. And it's really our responsibility to, to, to get that messaging out about the opportunity and to understand why those perceptions exist. Do those perceptions exist for some because of finances? Have we effectively communicated how they can do this at low or no cost while in high school and um, the financial benefits that that can provide to them after high school? Have we effectively communicated to them the impact that this can have on them entering the workforce and the wage outcomes that they can expect after high school? Have we effectively communicated to them the different options for transfer into four-year universities or in the CTE pathways? 
So really, um, I, I think that we in the post-secondary world in partnership with our K-12 partners have a, a tremendous responsibility on informing, on the messaging, on educating uh, the families in our communities uh, about what this opportunity is. Once that has happened and once we can have students enroll in these programs and start to experience it, then their perception of what dual enrollment is and the perception of themselves and what that future is. I think that's when we start to see the change. So it's really incumbent upon um, us to, to start to make a broader awareness. Uh, I think there we have some communities and when we're talking about inequities, we have some communities in our region where dual enrollment is much more part of the high school vernacular than other communities. And it is really, really critical that we build this language in and this experience in to a more um, typical high school vernacular throughout all of our high schools in our service region. Thank you, Lori. And, and Addison, I'm gonna bring this back to you to also from the student perspective, how did you weigh the decision to take dual enrollment compared to other options you had available to you at Goochland High School? Yeah, um, I decided that dual enrollment was something for me because um, personally, I really like to be challenged in school. Dual enrollment gave me a lot of options to take on classes that were beyond what I could have at Goodson High School. And um, a lot of what I noticed with the dual enrollment program is that students are treated as high school students with you know the familiarity of having a Goodson teacher teaching me college level courses was really nice to have, but also to have the expectations of a high of a college student was really good because I personally really want to succeed in college. I want to go very far. And having the duality of having someone you know also expect a lot from you is really nice to have with the dual enrollment program. So like with Miss Beard, I took psychology through um, the dual enrollment program with her. And even though, you know, I know Miss Weird, I love her. I went to class, I worked on stuff, but that same amount of time I spent in class, she taught me to spend outside of class, doing my textbook reading, doing my own research, my own like learning to understand the subject and come in the next day prepared for class. And that is a lot of what college is, spending the time that you spend in class, outside of class, knowing the subject. And although, you know, getting advice from touring colleges is great and talking to college advisors is great, but having a program where you are treated as such is very good for building that technique and be able, being able to go into college feeling prepared, like you've done this before. Um, it was really big for me. And then also just the opportunities, like I said before, like classes that I don't have, like anthropology, sociology, psychology, things like that. There's so many um, programs that dual enrollment provides for students. Taking college Spanish was really fun. Um, <laughs> and also just understanding how to focus on, you know, Jeanette's understanding how to kind of navigate around um, my college courses to get to where I need to be um, was really helpful. And that's why I chose the dual enrollment program to do in high school. That's really helpful uh, insight, Addison. And I, I know that I've learned a ton during this conversation about dual enrollment, how robust the program can be and what it takes to really make sure that it's made readily available to all students. 
Um, and so wrapping up this conversation, 30 seconds or less, I'm going to ask each of you the same question. What do you see as the future of dual enrollment? What do you see as the future of this program? Um, Alan, starting with you. So I'll just add to, to that question, I'll say that I think we are at the at the start of what is going to be an amazing run of dual enrollment opportunities for students nationwide I and mean, certainly in our service area here at Reynolds. Um, I think that more and more folks are starting to see the benefit of what dual enrollment can bring to families, to students, um, things that I've seen for my career in dual enrollment and in, in higher ed, where it changes not only the life of the student, but it changes family lives. It changes the opportunities for students, but it also changes the way that families have to respond to higher education as, an, as, as, as something that needs to be prepared for, planned for, and quite frankly, financed. Um, so it checks so many boxes. You know, I mentioned earlier, um, equity and access, high stakes testing is out the window. Um, it, it just provides, I think, what we need right now in America for students that are looking for opportunities and they just need a door to open for them. And I think that dual enrollment can be that door. And so I think it's exciting right now to be in dual enrollment. Taylor, what do you think? I mean, I, I agree with Alan. I, you know, when I started at Goochland in 2016, it was um, before we had that first class graduate and it was a class of 23 students. And I think our incoming ACA class now we're up to, I want to say we're close to 80 students. Like it is just continuing to grow. And um, I think, you know, in the beginning we were fighting that battle of um, rumors about transferability, you know, this isn't going to transfer, this is a waste of time, but you know, the proof is in the pudding. We've got the data now to show that, you know, our graduates are, um, being able to transfer most of their credits and they're finishing school up earlier than they thought and diving into those, those majors uh, more quickly than they would have had they had to go in and take, you know, all their gen ed classes again. So I, I'm excited to see where it's going to continue to go, but I just, I can see that it's just going to continue to, to grow. Patricia, how about you? I think, the word that came to my mind was purposeful. I think dual enrollment and everything about it will become more and more purposeful. We will have purposeful conversations around why are we offering dual enrollment? What will, how will the students benefit? And then we'll get very purposefully that information in the students and the family's hands so that they can make purposeful and, and informed decisions about what's best for them. And, and that's, if, if we do that, then we've been successful in, in helping students make decisions that are best for them with the information that, that allows them to do that. Lori, how about you? Yeah, so I would first like just to give a shout out to Addison um, for coming on, on this show. And I hope, Addison, that you know that we not only see you as a Goochland graduate, but you're a Reynolds graduate and you will always be part of our family. So um, kudos to you for the work you've done over the last couple of years and, and for showing up today. Um, so what do I think the, the future is of dual enrollment? We are experiencing seismic shifts in higher education right now, uh, in many parts brought on by the pandemic. And we 
have to recognize and are recognizing that dual enrollment is part of that shift. That as we expand our access mission and our student success mission, and we get more honest about how we create equitable pathways to meaningful employment, dual enrollment is a cornerstone of that work. We are starting to penetrate into our communities more intentionally, more purposefully, as, as Patricia said, and not just taking a smattering of courses, but taking a, a series of courses that work into a pathway that leads to further education and family sustaining wages in the workforce. So I'm excited to, to see what's on the horizon. I think it's, it's going to be changing just along with the rest of higher education but I think it will be in a way that would be really impactful for the communities we're, we're, we're built to serve. Jenna, what do you think? This episode's been awesome. Um, so I appreciate everybody on this episode. I think when I think of the future of dual enrollment, it's a couple of different pieces. I think a lot of people talked about access. I think of also access as it relates to what we were talking about earlier and that not not assuming that every student is a college bound student and that for many students going directly into career is maybe the only, if not the best choice for them and, and that it varies. And I think dual enrollment provides a space for that conversation in a unique way that I don't see other advanced coursework pathways offering. The other component I think is really about partnerships. I think we're maximizing our state resources if we're maximizing our partnerships between our high schools and our partnerships with our community colleges. Alan's conversation about the, that professional development, you're doing professional development and engagement with a teacher in a school, and that engagement may offer that teacher career opportunities that are unique to that, and then hopefully retain that teacher in a school. And we talk a lot about teacher retention, right? So I'm really thinking about the dual enrollment program being this holistic way of thinking about maximizing our resources in the state, maximizing how we support each other, how we create professional development. And when we're looking at potential barriers in the future of maybe credentialization, I think that just provides us an opportunity to come together and say, okay, so if students are coming out of school with an associate's degree and they're able to graduate earlier with an undergraduate degree program because they did this dual enrollment program, then can we have some sort of way to also give them a scholarship that then pays for their master's degree so that they are better set up as teachers in these schools to be credentialized, right? So I'm really thinking about, can we connect the dots? Can we be creative? And can we maximize our resources in the state to really serve our communities? Because that's really what we're all trying to do is, is create opportunity and create access to opportunities that really allow people to bring their best selves to the work environment and bring their best selves into their communities. So I'm excited about the future. Addison, bring us home. Um, I just wanted to say that I have loved listening to all of you about um, everything that you know about the ACA program and how inclusive you guys are to all students. And it's been really wonderful listening to all of you and all of all the knowledge that you have. Um, I think for me, I really hope that the dual enrollment programs for our state become less foreign to the student body as a whole and less intimidating. And um, I think right now we're seeing a lot of um, progress and a lot of um, positive results from classes who have graduated with the dual enrollment program. And I hope that um, rising um, freshmen, you know, 
eighth graders, I hope they can look at this program and see the success that it's had and not see it as something that is scary, intimidating and really, really hard and something that's only for super smart students. I hope they see that these programs are meant for people who are just serious about their future. And that's, you know, all you have to be. This is a program that helps you make a plan. And I hope that it doesn't become so scary because <laughs> I know it can be a big thing, but I think it just helps a lot of students and it would help them to know that it's something made for them. Thank you for sharing about your experiences, Addison. I'm really grateful for this conversation and for the uh, the important work that everybody who is on this call um, is doing in this area. And we're going to need to leave that there for now. But if you want to read more about dual enrollment classes, you can access the Merck Research Brief linked in the description of this episode or visit our website at merck.soe.bcu.edu slash projects, where you can also find additional research and resources from our equitable access and support for advanced coursework study. If you would like to stay up to date on findings from this and other Merck studies, you can sign up for our listserv on our homepage. You can also subscribe and listen to other episodes of Abstract wherever you get your podcasts, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Our thanks as always to the VCU School of Education for supporting the work that we do at Merck and to all of our partner school divisions, Chesterfield, Goochland, Hanover, Henrico, Petersburg, and Richmond Public Schools. Many thanks to Jenna Linhart, Taylor Reard, Addison Winston, Alan Riddle, Lori Dwyer, and Patricia Parker for being with us today to share their thoughts about the dual enrollment program. And of course, thanks as always to you for joining our conversation wherever you may be. We hope that you will share this episode with anyone who you think would find it interesting or helpful. This has been another episode of Abstract, the podcast of the Metropolitan Educational Research Consortium in the School of Education at Virginia Commonwealth University, where we explore issues and ideas in public PK-12 education. Let's talk again soon.